Let us open God's word this morning to Exodus chapter 8, where we continue on where we left off last week. If you're just joining us in the midst of this series, uh, you've come at a a great time because you get to hear me uh, preach on frogs and gnats and flies and all of those types of things to do my very best to tie this back to the gospel and what God would have us do in light of these things. Many of us growing up, I would think I was in eighth or ninth grade when I was first introduced to William Golding's work in 1954, Lord of the Flies. If you're familiar with that book, or perhaps you're not, but you remember names such as Ralph and Jack and Simon and Piggy and others, and you remember that in that story, Golding tries to paint a picture of what it looks like for a group of boys whose plane had crashed and they found themselves on a deserted island and who quickly began to be at war with one another. One of the things that Golding was doing in that moment is he was trying to paint a story of the condition of the human heart, but also seeking to show how things can seem to be organized, but then they can divulge into utter chaos. And we know the tragedy of the end of that work where some of these young boys began to murder one another and began to take each other's lives. You see, the story of the plagues is not so different than what Golding attempted to do in his work, The Lord of the Flies. The plagues are a picture to remind God's people of how he can move a kingdom, a kingdom of man that that seems to be in control of everything, yet a people who were far from him. And God began to take that civilization. He began to take that kingdom of Pharaoh and the land of Egypt, and he began to move it from a land of stability into an utter land of chaos, utterly disrupting the way of life of those Egyptians. And he does it in some quite peculiar ways. As we've talked about in previous weeks, God is sovereign and he could have chosen to deliver the Israelites however he sought fit. And he, and he sought to do it in a lot of peculiar ways that are striking to us. And so I want to pick up in the text beginning in verse 16 where we left off last week. And God's word says this. Then the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron. Stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and he struck the dust of the earth and there were gnats on man and beast. All of the dust of the earth became gnats in all of the land of Egypt. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce these gnats, but they could not do it. So there were gnats on man and beach. The magicians said to Pharaoh, then this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. What's interesting about this point and this idea of these gnats that existed in the Hebrew, there's a word that means literally not gnats, but it means lice. And it translates out of the the text, most literally, the King James Version, I think in this moment, has it absolutely correct. And the ESV and the NIV and others, they favor gnats primarily because of some early Greek translations out of the Hebrew that favored the word gnats. Now, while that's interesting, we know a little bit about gnats, but in the text, it describes these animals, these insects, as as in some way, there in that moment in verse 17, it says that these gnats were on man and they were on beast. They seem to have 
touched the Egyptians. They seem to have annoyed the animals. And it's most likely it was lice or it was perhaps mosquitoes, not gnats and not fleas. We see some of the early church fathers, men such as Philo of Alexandria, who, who wrote literally the following century after Jesus' death, described them as, as insects that were creeping up people's noses and, and into deep within their ears. Now, I don't know the last time you had lice or experienced lice, but it is not a pleasant experience. Having five children of my own and, and on a fairly regular basis, no matter what school they're in, we'll get a, a note from the nurse saying someone in the classroom that your child was in has lice and you need to check your kids. On several occasions, that lice was transferred and got into my kids' hairs and was brought home. And, and let me tell you, it seemed as if World War III had happened in my home trying to eradicate these vermin. From the special baths and showers to the special combs that you have to buy to throwing your sheets in your beds and, and trash bags and leaving them there for hours and days to make sure that you'd killed them all. The lice were not a pleasant experience in any which way. And oftentimes what's accompanied with that is sometimes the shame that you would feel and, and lack of hygiene that would exist there. And you feel this condemnation and yet in this moment it says that God afflicts the people with these lice, with these gnats, with, with whatever this was. And, and the idea behind that was it was meant to undermine the kingdom of Pharaoh in particular. Because you see, the Egyptians believed, as we've talked about in previous weeks, that the Pharaoh had the power. He had the ability and, and being a God himself to maintain the order of the cosmos. In other words, nothing would happen outside of the hand of Pharaoh. That if he willed it, he could will it into being that it would happen. If he said something, it would, it would come about. And, and the Egyptians, they called this idea that characterized his ability to, to control and to maintain order. They called it the ma'at. And it meant that he controlled the harmony and, and the order and the stability. That he was the one responsible for controlling these things. And so you can imagine to their surprise as God is undermining the kingdom of Pharaoh by little bitty gnats and lice and these insects and these animals and all the things that he was about to do and to bring upon them. Speaking directly to their view of what the kingdom of Pharaoh actually was, God begins to undermine it and Pharaoh begins to harden his heart and, and he continues to not listen to him. But then we pick up in verse 20 and it's not over. He says, the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh. And as he goes out to the water and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. Or else, if you will not let my people go, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people and into your houses. And the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies and also the ground on which they stand. Now, Hebrew scholars would contend back and forth that what are these swarms of flies that he's sending? And what are the, the possibilities of, of what these could be? The Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible refers to them as blood-sucking bugs. 
called them dog flies in, in some moments. And these dog flies, they would torment both man and beast. And we see later on in verse 24 that it says they were heavy. There was this great swarm that, that was upon them, too numerous for the Egyptians. They were burdensome to them. You can imagine these flies flying around and the distraction and the nuisance that would have been created by these insects. You know, this past week, God has a sense of humor because on Monday mornings, uh, we sat in a staff meeting with all of our staff. And in the midst of that staff meeting, wouldn't you know it, that it looked like a big old dog horse fly was flying around in that room. And we would talk and we would state things and you would look at different staff members and you'd see their eyes shoot up and everybody was watching, everybody was waiting. We didn't know if it was a fly or it could have been a bee, could have been a hornet at that time. We had no idea, but it was just one of them. And yet it, it appeared and it seemed just that one to control the entirety of the staff meeting. So much so that the pastor was so concerned that he ended staff meeting early so we could exit the room and get away from whatever it was that was flying above us. But whether it was a blood-sucking bug or a dog fly, as some would have it, some scholars would also contend that it wasn't either one of those things but rather was known as a scarab or a beetle. Oftentimes within Egyptian life, they began to deify these beetles and, and these scarabs. They began to develop over time in the myth and the legend of them as they treated them as almost godlike. And so the idea is quite plausible that when he says, I will send swarms of flies, what he's referring to are scarabs or beetles. Now within Egyptian folklore and, and artistry, we see beetles all throughout on the monuments and on mummies and charms and, and we see them on Egyptian amulets. And the beetle to the Egyptian was, was sacred. And over time, what began to happen is they would see those beetles flying around in the air and then over time, they began to develop the idea that the beetle was symbolic, the scarab was symbolic of the sun and for the sun. And so they begin to make a connection that the beetle as it flies up in the air, they, they see it in the sun. And so the Egyptians began to, to worship the sun. And they gave the sun in their own language, his own name, just simply Keeper, K-H-E-P-R-E-R. -E -E and he was known as the God of eternity or rather the God of the resurrection. And they deified that little beetle. They worshiped that sun. And so wouldn't it be within God's wisdom and wouldn't it be within God's own right to send not necessarily a swarm of flies, but a later understanding that he would send the very type of beetle or close to that the Egyptians would worship. Thus undermining the kingdom of Pharaoh, undermining the gods in which they worship. Other theologians would contend that there's a third possible solution to the answer of what is and are the flies. And that the flies could have been directed at to undermine in particular whatever these insects actually were. But it would have been directed at Beelzebub which the Egyptians worshiped as guardian and as protector. And we later learn in Luke's gospel of 1115 that Beelzebub was the prince of demons. 
And we've talked about the demonic activity that existed within the court of Pharaoh as these magicians and priests, they come and they seek to imitate what it is that God had done, let it be known by their secret arts. And so they would seek to duplicate, but in these instances, they could not duplicate. And these priests and these magicians even warn Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But yet... Even in the midst of that, Pharaoh continues to harden his heart and he continues to resist the very thing that God is calling him to do. But the text goes on and it gets a little bit more peculiar because there's some statements that are made in this moment that sort of seem out of touch with what is actually happening within the narrative. And I want to to focus in on that just for a moment in verse 22. But God says, Pharaoh hardens, he fills the, the land full of the flies. And in verse 22, he says, but on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell. I will set apart the land where God says my people dwell so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Now we're first introduced to this land of Goshen all the way back in Genesis 45 and 46. And if you remember that story of Joseph being reunited with his brothers and then sending for his father and saying, bring dad in the, in the midst of this famine, you bring him into the land of Goshen where he will live and where he will dwell. Because it was in that moment that God began to, to identify, to set apart his people. And so God sets apart this land in the midst of this plague. And he goes on and he says in verse 23, that I will put a division between my people and your people. And tomorrow this sign will surely happen. And the Lord did so. And there came great swarms of flies into the houses of Pharaoh and into his servants' houses throughout all the land of Egypt. The land was ruined by the swarm of the flies. The land was ruined consumed with it. The hand of God all over the place. Spurgeon famously said about this text, he said, when it pleases God by his judgments to humble men, he is never at a loss for means. He can use lions or lice, famines or flies. He can use anything to mold and to shape, to get the attention of, to undermine the kingdom of. And in this moment, God begins to put a division between his people and he sets them apart in this land. So they are not afflicted in the same way that the Egyptians experience the affliction. You see, in this moment, we're reminded of this truth by application, I believe, that it wasn't the great things that began to overwhelm Pharaoh, but rather it was the little things that were done in very large quantities to get his attention. As one other famously said, it's a death by a thousand cuts. It's the little things that begin to undermine, that begin to, to tick away and that God begins to use those little things in, in numerous and quantities and amounts to get the attention of Pharaoh, to cause enmity between Pharaoh and his, and his people, for him to see that what he's doing is wrong as God begins to deliver and works this process of delivering his people. It's the little things done in very large quantities 
This got me thinking this past week about oftentimes how relationships can fail. They can fail with our coworkers or spouses or people that we love dearly. And it's usually not one big thing that undermines and erodes the relationships, but it's the quantity of numerous things done over and over and over again that begin to undermine and begin to erode the trust and to begin to create the conflict. It's the little things more often. It's the subtle things. It's why God calls us to contend to take every captive every thought captive to him. Everything that we think and say, all that we do and what we labor for, everything should be done for him and his kingdom and for his glory and for our good that happens to be caught up in the midst of his glory. And verse 25 goes on and he says, then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and he said, go sacrifice to your God within the land. Pharaoh seems to relent in this moment, but Moses said, it would not be right to do so for the offerings we shall sacrifice to the Lord our God are an abomination to the Egyptians. In other words, the the cows that we're gonna bring forth, the animals that we're gonna bring forth and, and offer as a sacrifice to our God, these are the very things, Pharaoh, that your people, that they revere, that they have made into little gods. Therefore, in in their presence, we need to to leave the land of Egypt and to go deep into the wilderness, uh, considering them and understanding that what we are going to do is an abomination to the Egyptians. For if we sacrifice offerings abominable to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not stone us? For us to take something that is considered sacred to them and to put it to death, would they not take our lives? Therefore, we must go three days journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as, notice this, as he tells us. You see, what Pharaoh didn't understand in this moment is he was willing to compromise just very briefly, but he wasn't willing to necessarily follow it to the letter of the law. Some might argue that Pharaoh had the spirit of the law in that moment, but he didn't have the letter of the law and to follow it with great precision. And so he says, we must go these three day journeys and go. One scholar said it this way, sacrificing bulls amongst the Egyptians would be like holding a pig roast at a synagogue. It'd be like cooking hamburgers in front of a Hindu temple. It'd be like eating meat in front of groups like PETA and other animal rights activist groups. It would be highly offensive to those people in the midst of that. And so the point that Moses was conveying was trying to follow God precisely without compromise, but Pharaoh didn't understand that. He was willing to let them make the sacrifices as long as they didn't leave Egypt. Secretly at times, I believe it's true of us and and certainly well within my heart and my own life that I wish to make sacrifices to the Lord, but yet I want to be friendly with the land of Egypt. In other words, I'm willing to do a few things right for the Lord, but not necessarily willing to let go of the land or the sin that perhaps holds me hostage or keeps me in bondage that has yoked me down and caused slavery. Isn't that true of us often as a people that we want to be with God, but perhaps sometimes we're not willing to let go of the things that keep us from God. And we wanna stay in the land that we have grown comfortable with, 
We want to stay in the midst of the, of the places that, that make us comfortable, knowing that we have been called to a higher purpose and have been set apart for something far more meaningful. You see, following Jesus requires us to live in uncompromising ways in a world that is full of compromise. To be a people of conviction, to be a people of principle. To be a people who walk not by sight, but walk by faith, seeking to please our Lord at every turn, seeking to do right by him because he has done right by us. Following him requires that we live in uncompromising ways, that we are a principled people. What that means is, is that we are people that live by this book. And we do what it says when it says to do it and how it says to do it. That we walk in, in faithfulness because God has been faithful to his people, has he not? So Pharaoh said, verse 28, I'll let you go sacrifice to the Lord, to him in the wilderness. Only you must not go very far away. Would you plead for me? In other words, Pharaoh in this moment is asking Moses and Aaron, I believe your God. Would you pray to him that these things would stop? And then Moses said, behold, I am going out from you and I will plead with the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart from Pharaoh and his servants and from the people tomorrow. Only let not Pharaoh cheat again by not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. So verse 30, Moses went out from Pharaoh and he prayed to the Lord and the Lord did as Moses asked and he removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants and from his people. And yet not one remained, but... Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also, and he did not let the people go again. I find that one of the most striking things in Exodus 8, in this moment, is not so much Pharaoh continuing to harden his heart, continuing to defy the Lord, but what I find most striking is in the midst of this narrative, this idea that God would take just but a moment to remind his people that he had set them apart, that he treats his people with love and with care and with concern. And he will oftentimes in his goodness, something that we might even say and, and understand as being unfair, he will treat his children with great kindness and he will not treat those who are not in his family in the same way. He sets apart his people and he removes them in this moment and, and he calls them his people and he allows them not to endure the things that the Egyptians are enduring. The New Testament has a word for that and it's just simply grace. It's a stubborn people that he sets apart that he puts in the land. It's a stubborn people that don't quite understand what it is and, and weren't quite following, yet God in his mercy, God in his grace, his unmerited favor over his people, he sets them apart and he chooses them and he puts them aside so that they do not endure the same thing. Exodus makes it clear that God treated his own people differently from the Egyptians. When they didn't lose livestock or have boils or crops destroyed or their sons were not taken, which we will see in the next few weeks, Exodus is both a story of salvation for one and condemnation for the other. 
Out of all the nations, God sets them apart. A people who had no claim on his throne, no claim on his grace. It reminds me of what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4 where he simply just says he chose us in him before the creation of the world. You see the reminder of Exodus 8 this morning is that we are not saved through any merit of our own but only by God's good grace. Our redemption is found in Christ alone. In the Christ who was crucified on the cross, who demonstrates the greatest exodus of all times and freeing his people from the captivity and the bondage of sin. You see, this morning, that is the Jesus that we sing to. That is the God that we serve, who has delivered me and he has delivered you, those who would confess with their mouth that he is Lord, believe in their hearts that God raised him up that anyone would call upon his name would be saved. This morning, if you have not called upon his name, I would plead with you to do it. If you feel the, 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 the weight and the condemnation of sin and the mistakes and the separation from you and God and the spirit of God is, is speaking to your heart right now and he is saying, confess, call upon him. Would you do that this morning? Maybe you've been walking with God for a long time. And maybe you know Jesus, but maybe somewhere along the way you got lured back into the land of Egypt and got captivated by the former things that you you thought you were free from. Can I say that today there is still grace and mercy at the throne for you? And there will be. Let us pray and let us seek the presence of our God. Father, we thank you that you have saved us and redeemed us. Father, oftentimes we see your grace and acted upon people. We've seen it in our own lives and we don't understand why. We may even see it and and be on the outside and and we think that you're being unfair. Father, we may not know, but we know that you know why. And so, Father, we ask that in your goodness and in your kindness, you would draw us closer to you is our best attempt under the authority of your spirit and your word that we would draw near to you, to to be near to you, to to know you and and to walk with you more faithfully. So Father, I pray that as we leave this room today that we would leave here as an uncompromising people, committed to your word, committing to be faithful to what you have called us to do. So Father, would you help your people respond in this time and in this moment? We ask these things in Christ's name and God's people said.